Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. So we're going to study out of 1 Peter today, and I am in verses 21 through 25, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Last week we talked, or not, not last week because it was Thanksgiving, but the week before that we talked about submission to authority, which right now is not anything anybody wanted to hear. And quite honestly, nobody really wants to hear the whole honor the king speech right after an election that everybody's, so many people are fussy about. But we talked about it anyway because it's in the word and we have to address it. You can't just skip over something because you don't think you want to deal with the problem. And so we talked about that. Verse 18, 19, and 20, I'm actually going to skip over those verses, which is funny because I said we can't just skip over verses. But there's a reason I'm going to skip over those verses is because 18 through 20, if you'll read them, are a almost exact teaching of the verses I taught the last time we were together. But instead of regarding governmental authorities and stuff like that, it talks about the employer-employee relationship and how we're to honor that authority. And so the message is the same. The position is different. And so if you'll just take last week's message and overlay it over your responsibility as an employee, I, I, I don't want to teach that lesson twice, okay? Um, so just know that everything we said about authority is true of all authority, from God, king, government, employer employee amen and so that with that i'm going to start today in verse 21 but before i do that i want to ask you a question if a hundred people if you asked a hundred people to describe you what would they say <laughs> justin starts laughing over here he's i can't say that in church <laughs> which is exactly my point if I asked a hundred people to describe me, to describe me, depending on when they knew me, how they knew me, how intimately familiar they were th with me in that particular time frame of my life, what lens they're looking through, they're going to describe me differently, right? Um, they're going to remember, some some guys will remember uh, paratrooper Jim Cubic. which quite honestly, I'd have to ask them what that was like, because I don't remember much about being paratrooper Jim Cubic. Some of them would ask about police, Jim Cubic, Academy Jim Cubic. Some of them would describe um, saved Jim Cubic. Some would some would describe the pre-saved Jim Cubic. It depends on where they saw me, where they met me, what they know of me. I got asked one time because there are people out there that still talk ugly about me, <laughs> even though I've been saved since 2006 and really trying to do right. There are still people out there that seem to make a career out of talking about the stuff I got going on. And I got asked one time, are you mad about that? And I said, no. doesn't bother me at all. And it sincerely doesn't bother me at all. Here's the reason. Because they're talking through the lens of what they know. They're talking through the lens of the information I gave them. And so whether they like me or don't like me is probably based on where they met me and where their relationship was with me when they met me. And so 
they're going to remember me differently. They're going to ask different questions. They're going to they're going to all say something different. Even if all of them said something good, which is never going to happen, all of them are going to say something else. If I ask a hundred people about you or about me, they would all say something different. If I asked a hundred people about Jesus, what would they say? They would say he was a teacher, good teacher, that he was the savior of the world, that he was born of a virgin, this time of year we like to talk about that, that he came here, loved us, died for us. All of these things are true. Some people would give you examples that they think that Jesus is, not knowing him, but having heard about him, that are untrue. But regardless, there are truths about every description. The truth that I want to talk about today in regard to Jesus is this. Jesus, regardless of how you looked at it, was a perfect example to us. And a perfect example in suffering to us, which is what I want to talk about today. That he was perfect in suffering. Now, Pastor Jim, you talk a lot about suffering and the Christian sufferer and all these kinds of things. It's just because what the Bible says. If I could avoid suffering as a Christian, I would. I got better things to do. But if the Bible deals with it a certain percentage or amount of time, then I should deal with it a certain percentage or amount of time and cause you to have to deal with it a certain percentage or amount of time. And so I want to talk about suffering because it's what the Bible says. The Bible talks about suffering. It talks about the suffering servant, the one who suffered perfectly for us. So that, and the reason I want to teach it, not just because it's in Scripture, because it gives us an understanding, a realization that because it's in Scripture, because Jesus did it, and because to be His is to act like Him, we're responsible for it too. I'm a, I am traditionally a challenging pastor. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. But very rarely do you walk out of here saying, oh, that was sweet. <laughs> right? Without a challenge. Now, you might say that was sweet. But I'm praying that you're listening to the, but what are you going to do with Jesus part of every sermon? Because if he suffered perfectly, we should be willing to suffer as he suffered. Amen? And that's what Peter's dealing with here in 1 Peter. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. Let me read it to you. For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? To endure, according to verse 21, to endure persecution, to endure suffering. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Hmm. That's a challenge right there. I'll get to it in a minute. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, 
before you were continually straying like sheep, but now have been returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. That sounds like harsh language, but I'm hoping at the end of this teaching, this language brings you such comfort and, and challenge, but such comfort that it's like a warm blanket. I sat in my office today and just cried thinking about the depth of the text of this message. That Jesus Christ, as we talked about this last weekend, came down from heaven and suffered on our behalf so that we could spend eternity with him blows my mind. That he became the good shepherd, the perfect example, the perfect sufferer, so that we might spend eternity with a God that we don't deserve blows my mind. Amen? And so I want to talk about the perfect, being perfect in suffering and say first that in suffering, Jesus was the perfect standard, the perfect example of our suffering. He was the perfect standard. Verses 21 through 23 reads like this. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus suffered for us to show us that suffering happens. And then he tells us in this text to be an example to you, to follow in his steps. Now, there's only a certain degree to which we can follow Jesus' example in suffering because we can't do everything that Jesus did for us, for someone else. I can't die for someone else's atonement. I can't cause them to be perfect. But what I can do, because that, that work's already been done. Jesus did that work once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10, I think, talks about how he was the, the absolute, single, and only necessary perfect sacrifice. So I, I can't do that. But there are things that I can be faithful to do that we should be faithful to do in regard to suffering to be an example to other people. And this is what Peter's talking about, <coughs> that even though Jesus suffered unjustly as a criminal, even though he committed no crime, he acted in such a way so that we would know, one, who he was, because how he acted proved that he was who he said he was, according to the Old Testament text, but also showed us how we should act. And so, this. Jesus' attitude in his own death on the cross provided us with the perfect standard of, having, of how to deal with sin. Let me read you Hebrews chapter 2. Not all of it. it. says this. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. I want you to listen to that. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. I bring this up to tell you that suffering's coming, suffering happens. Jesus suffered perfectly, and the only way that we're going to endure that suffering, which according to the first part of the first verse, that we're going to endure that suffering, which is our purpose, is if we keep our eyes focused 
on who Jesus is. What Jesus accomplished. Because so many of us, when things get hard, what do we do? We drift away. We don't want to use verbiage that a, a friend and I were talking to using earlier today. We, we avoid the tension that necessarily exists. It's not comfortable to suffer. And so we run from suffering. It's not comfortable to be persecuted. So we run from persecution, which means sometimes we deny who we are. We walk away from who we are. We allow people to talk about the God that we serve in front of us without confronting them about it because we don't want to suffer at all. But Jesus suffered perfectly. And so if we're going to do what he did, then we have to act like he acted acted he kept his eyes on the father and everything that he did our responsibility is to keep our eyes focused on him how many of you guys have ever wanted something so badly that it's the only thing that you focused on that literally everything else around it was a blur i want that whether it be a job a boyfriend girlfriend i can remember when i met angela she wanted me so bad that's not true. I could barely get her to talk to me. Which is why I wanted her so bad that I focused on her. And everything else except for her relationally became unimportant. I studied her. I memorized her. Because everything, because I needed I know that sounds horrible, but I needed to have her. doesn't sound horrible. I guess it's sweet, right? All right. Yeah, that's sweet. <laughs> and so <laughs> Pastor Rick shakes his head. He goes, no, that's not sweet. That's weird, man. But we need to focus on Jesus like this. When I wanted to go work at the police academy, I got up in the morning. I worked out with Chris Allison. I know it looks like neither one of us works out. Sorry, buddy, if you're watching this. Worked out with Chris Allison, went to the academy, spent all day, came back in the afternoon, took a shower, put my uniform on, went to work at the sheriff's office till 10 o'clock. And I did that every day for a year and a half. You know why? Because I wanted that. This is the focus that we should have in regard to Christ Jesus and the things that he tells us that we should be, the way he tells us we should act. And if he suffered, we should suffer. He suffered as the perfect example for us of what suffering should look like. Well, what, is that, what does that mean? How was he the perfect example? It says that he, is to, he was leaving you an example to follow in his steps. That example comes from a word that means to trace, which means that you're supposed to follow him so perfectly that you can't tell a difference between him and you. Anybody almost there yet? Not me. My handwriting looks like a pre-kindergartner in regard to such a thing because I'm not there yet. But if I keep my eyes on Jesus, if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll understand that because he did, you can do. And what did he do? According to this text, he was sinned against, but committed no sin. 
Any of you guys ever been sinned against? Did you allow someone else's sin to become your sin? Because you decided that in their sin, you had the right to be sinful towards them? Not only in when he was sinned against, did he not commit any sin because he was, he was perfect, but he was lied about, but had no deceit in his mouth. You guys ever been lied about? Don't raise your hand or shake your head. If you ever lied about somebody else, you get back at them for lying about you. Or maybe not lied. Let's call it we just shaded the truth a bit. Jesus didn't do such a thing. Jesus didn't allow their sin to become his sin, his deceit to become their deceit. Mark 14, 56 says, Many witnesses told lies against Jesus, but their stories did not agree. God takes care of his own. He was hated, but didn't hate in return. That's what reviled means. I have a tendency to dislike people that dislike me. I think it's a natural human tendency. Fine, you don't like me, that's cool, I don't like you either. It's pretty elementary and kindergartenish, but it's how we act. Unless we're trying to be like Jesus, unless our focus is right, unless we're tracing properly, we allow someone else's sin to become our sin. We allow someone else's lie to become our deceit. We allow someone else's mistreatment of us, hatred, to become our hatred for them and mistreatment towards them. I've told a bunch of people this. Sometimes I, I have to tell myself this. We need to get to a place as Christians, as just people, but especially Christians, where we're okay with someone else not knowing our side of the story. Jesus was beat to death and kept his mouth shut the whole time unless he was asked a question. Did he have a right to defend himself? Absolutely he had a right to defend himself. Did he have the ability to defend himself? Absolutely he had the ability to defend himself. But do, do you not know that I can call down legions of angels? You have no authority over me except for the authority that my father gives to you, which is what he told Pilate. And Pilate asked him, he said, so what's the truth? And Pilate didn't wait for the answer when the truth was standing right in front of him. And Jesus didn't push the issue. He didn't say, I am the truth. Because he didn't wait for the answer. He just let it go by. You know why? Because just because he was hated, just because he was lied against, just because he was sinned against, he wasn't going to sin, lie, or hate someone else. We can do better, Christians. We wonder, why can't people take us seriously? Why do people not like Christians? Why do we live in a society that defames Jesus and the Christian denomination and Christian people, in one hand, we ask that question, and in the other hand, we act like we don't deserve to be called Christians in the first place. And we wonder why this contradiction exists. Because we've allowed, and I know I'm beating it to death, but we've allowed our sin to become someone else's sin. Our hatred to become someone else's hatred. It's what I told you at the intro. I don't care what they say about me. I'm okay with them not knowing my side of the story. 
because they're probably looking at me through a lens I gave them at some point, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And the good thing about it is it doesn't matter at the end of the day if they're lying and they know they're lying. Because like Jesus, we have to trust that God will judge righteously, which is what it says at the end of this text. Do you trust God to judge righteously? Or don't you? Do you trust God's going to take care of your problem? Or do you think maybe you have to take care of your problem? They hit me where I live. Because I'm a, I show that dude. He don't know who he's talking to. There's two meanings to this text. And that he would judge righteously. Jesus trusted that he would judge righteously. The first is much like we've heard this text described probably most of us all of our life. That God would ultimately judge the actions of another. And he will. But that shouldn't be cause for celebration for us. That should be cause for mourning for us. Because Romans 5.8 is true. That God proved his love for us by sending Christ Jesus while we were still sinners. We don't say, well, God will judge you. We should say, please listen, because God is righteously judgmental. I, I struggle for your soul. I pray for you. I want you to come to a knowing. Under I've never hated anyone so bad that I would want them to go to hell. And so, yeah, we should have the heart of God. We should have the heart of Paul, who said out of his own mouth, he said, I would that I would be cursed and removed from God if only my brothers could know. Do you imagine having such a soul for the law? I'm not there yet, <laughs> right? I'll, be, I'll pray for you, but if you're going to hell, you're going to hell on your own. You know, I'm not giving up what I got so that you... But it shows a heart that we should have as Christians. It, it irritates me when I hear someone flippantly say, God will judge you without a tear in their eye. Because if you're going to say that to them, you better love them enough to say that to them. That's only one way that you can look at this text. And quite honestly, it's the it's the least of the ways I think we should look at this text. The most significant way we can look at this text is that Jesus did all of those things knowing that God would judge him righteously instead of us. God said, Jesus trusted that God would do what God would say that he would do, that when he placed the sin on Jesus, that that judgment would fall on him so that we could be with the Father forever. It's the most beautiful way to look at the text, but the least often way we look at the text. I celebrate, you talk about that blanket, I celebrate that Jesus was sinned against but didn't sin, was lied against but wasn't a liar 
was hated but didn't hate because he trusted that because he remained perfect, he was able to take on my sin. And because he was able to take on my sin, he got to, had the privilege of taking a beating for me. Does that blow anybody else's mind? Because I, I have to believe there's a song that somebody at Cornerstone wrote that says, I get to. You know, that there was a time when I had to go to church with my grandmother or I had to do this or I had to spend time with my grandfather. But now I've changed my way of thinking. I get to. I get to go to church. I get to spend time with my papa. Man, if I could spend one more day with my papa. I feel like Jesus had that same get-to mentality when he went to the cross for you. This is the beauty of what God has done for us. That in his perfect example, he didn't sin, was perfectly without sin according to the word of God, so that we, we didn't have to sit under the weight of our own judgment. Which is the second part of this text. The, the second point Peter's making here out of verse 24. He said, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. The second point I would make is in suffering, Jesus was the perfect substitute for us. Can't <laughs> I hear kids say, I can't even with this. You know, and, I, and what they're saying, I guess, is I, I, I don't even understand that. I don't even understand that, but it's true. That God suffered and in suffering became our perfect substitute. Substituting our himself. He took our place, the sin we deserved, so that we wouldn't have to bear the weight of it. If you don't know that today, let me tell you. There is a God in the universe that loves you so much that he did for you what no other person would ever be willing to do for you. Sacrificed in such an incredible way his own life so that you could have eternal life. Removed himself from heaven placed himself on earth so we could be removed from earth and placed into heaven. This is the substitutionary atonement that Christ died to give us. He paid the penalty we owe. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law required that we suffer the penalty for our own sin. It's the purpose of the law. And so it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, anything that hangs from a tree, anyone who hangs from a tree is cursed. He became cursed. 
so that he could occupy the space that I deserve to occupy as a sinner. If Christ hadn't taken my sins away, if Christ hadn't taken your sins away, you remain in them. I don't know how to make it more plain than that. If Christ wasn't bor- hadn't borne my sin, if Christ hadn't borne your sin, it would still hang on you. But praise God. He didn't see equality with God something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself, according to the text that we learned this last weekend, to death, even death on a cross, to take that which we deserve. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. Everybody says, for the wages of sin is death. I appreciate that. What I mean is they stop there. <laughs> like People are fast to say, for the wages of sin are death. And then they stop there. But this, that's condemning. This is the beautiful part we never say. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why do we so prefer the negative over the positive? Because quite honestly, because it's a free gift from God, there is no penalty for our sin for those who repent and call themselves His. This is the beauty of the substitution. It's a free gift of grace so that no one can brag according to the Word. Or so that no one can boast. Same thing. You didn't deserve it. He loved you enough to give it to you. as a free gift of grace. Jesus' perfect substitution, because he was willing to do what he did, his perfect substitution allows us to die to sin and live in righteousness. I think Christians take this as a, if you want to. So he died for me, I accepted him, and so now if I want to die to sin and live in righteousness, I can no, this is, a, this is a directive. He died for you so that you do live without sin and you do live righteously. You, you're as full of life as a dead person is full of death, or you should be. You should be progressing towards Christ's likeness every day. Jesus Christ became the substitution for us, according to this text, so that we could die to who we were, so that that no longer existed in us. But instead, so that we would become more and more and more and more righteous. Ultimately, being like Christ when we see Christ. I think it's beautiful that not only does He love us, but He loves us enough to remove all this junk from us. I could pay off your debt, but you'd still be in your mess. He paid off your debt and took you out of your mess. Thank you, Lord, indeed. And I think that's that's beautiful. I think he saw, Peter saw, 
this text. Because Christ suffered perfectly for us. Because Christ substituted perfectly for us. It's equivalent to being healed. There's a, I always thought this, this was misplaced verbiage. It seemed strange to me, out of place. And he himself bore our sins on his body and on the cross so that we might die to sin and live, for, live to righteousness. Semicolon, for by his wounds we are healed. It seems displaced, right? Until you realize that the opposite of sin and righteousness is death and unrighteousness from which you need to be healed from. And from which Christ gave his own life for you to be healed from. And so he loves us. He loves us perfectly and that he suffered perfectly for us. He atoned perfectly for us. And in his suffering, he was the perfect shepherd and is the perfect shepherd to us. The last verse says, For we were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. There's a bunch of stuff that a shepherd does, according to the word. Well, and according to tradition. A shepherd tends to the welfare of the sheep. At his own expense. A shepherd lays down his own life for the sheep. And in fact, Christ himself did that. But there's one thing in particular that I think is beautiful. Angela brought it up when she taught Psalms 23 a couple of years ago. And it was, it was a traditional thing. It wasn't scriptural, but it was what is known of a shepherd at that time. A shepherd would never lead his flock into a field that they'd never been in before until he himself walked every square inch of that field to ensure that there was no danger there to the sheep. I want you to think about that for a minute. Jesus walked the field that we now live in by becoming the propitiation for us, by sacrificing himself for us so that we might have a perfect example even at his own expense. How blessed are we? Incredibly, that God, God incarnate, suffered for us to be an example to us, to be a substitute for us, and to be a shepherd to us. Amen.